All right, so the title of the sermon this morning is The Joy of Jerusalem. And if you go and get your Bibles and turn with me to Nehemiah, we're going to be in chapters 11 and 12 this morning. 11 and 12. And uh, I just want to pause um, before we actually get into the meat of the text and realize how incredible of a journey the Lord has taken us on through this book. Um, we've got to watch God move through Nehemiah to restore the broken walls, the broken city of Jerusalem. And what that has done, in turn, has shown us the glory of our Redeemer, of Jesus, who has restored what is broken in us and in our world. And throughout that, we've been challenged on the messiness of ministry. We've seen how godly men and women have overcome opposition to that ministry. And we have seen, if you remember in Jay's sermon, we have seen how the redeemed people of God respond to the Word of God. And all of this continually showing us the glory of Jesus and his call on the church to get his gospel all over the world. So that brings us to 11 and 12. Um, if you have already kind of skimmed ahead, you realize it is another um, epic chapter of names and lists and places and things that are hard to pronounce. So go ahead and asking for mercy um, when we get to that point. Um, but these two chapters are aimed at showing us, us here, how the people of God organized themselves and celebrated the reestablishment of the city of God. It's a big deal what is happening in chapter 11 and 12. It is people understanding the plan of God and aligning their lives with it and ultimately celebrating that God is still on the throne. And we have a landing verse, okay? Um, Nehemiah 12, 43. We're going to put this on the screen. I want you to see this. The orange sentence is the one that I want you to leave here with. This is where we're going to get to. It says, They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God has made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And I believe that the goal of these passages, and I've been praying for us and for me, is that we would feel the awe and the wonder of that sentence deep in our souls. But in order to get there, as I'm assuming there's some of you, maybe even through some difficult parts of Nehemiah, we read this and it's like, okay, that's great. Like the joy of Jerusalem, it sounds like they had a nice worship concert. But if you want to see the beauty of this, we have a lot of introduction work to get through. So, just so you know, um, we are going to make our way through these two chapters to get us to that moment in verse 43, and I will not be reading um, every single name and list in these chapters, um, mostly because I guess I just have more uh, shame than Adam does. Uh, I'm not going to do that to myself or to you, um, although Adam, you do great. I just, I can't do 11 and 12. Okay. Um, so we're not going to be reading every single name and list, but before we get to that point, for you to leave here overwhelmed with the fact that the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away, we have a lot of groundwork to lay. So the first layer of introduction I want to put before you is three major questions that are going to guide our time through this text. So here they are. If you're taking notes, you want to write these down. The first major question that is going to guide our time through this is, why does the joy of Jerusalem even matter? It's a fair question, right? If we're going to be excited about the fact that somehow this joy was so loud and so potent that it got far away, we have to even ask, why does it matter? It's in the Bible. Clearly it matters for us. 
Why? And in order to get there, we're going to do a biblical theology of the city of God in light of the entire story of the Bible. You, want, you need to understand that Jerusalem matters to God. And then, before we get there, we're going to see the weight of the book of Nehemiah. Because I don't want you to just think this idea of Jerusalem pops up out of nowhere. This is actually the care and concern of Nehemiah in his ministry, and it's anchored in God's global glory plan through his city. That's the first question. Second question, how does it show off the glory of Jesus? First of all, that's a question we have to ask any time we come to the text, but particularly here, and for the more difficult sentences or the things that maybe don't make sense to us on the surface, you need to understand that this is aimed at showing off a particular part of the gospel so that you might glorify Jesus in your heart. Thirdly, we'll land here, is what does it mean for the church? How should the people of God now respond to the fact that in God's providence, he made sure the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away in Nehemiah's day. So that's where we're going to land. And we need to consider how we might emulate the faith of the people in Nehemiah 11 and 12. And then we'll also guide us, hopefully by God's grace, to be the type of church where our joy is heard all over our city and ultimately reverberating to the ends of the earth. Because we want to join in on seeing the joy of God to every tribe, tongue, and nation. So, a lot of work ahead of us. So let's start by anchoring this in the context of Nehemiah. So, I want you to see that the joy of Jerusalem mattered to Nehemiah. We're going to briefly highlight the first ten chapters that we've gone through. In chapter one, if you remember, Nehemiah hears of the brokenness of Jerusalem, and it wrecks him. You remember this? He's weeping, he's fasting, he cannot stand the thought of God's city being broken, and that did not just stay as an emotional exercise for him, that led to compassion, which led to action. He wanted to do something about the fact that God's city was broken. In chapter 2, we see that Nehemiah strategically works to restore Jerusalem. Once again, it wasn't just an emotional outcry, it was a plan in place to restore the city of God. Chapter 3, Nehemiah leads the group of people who are working strategically to restore Jerusalem. In chapter 4, do you remember this? When opposition to God's people manifests itself in people wanting to stop the restoration of Jerusalem. You remember that? And Nehemiah's ministry keeps going. Chapter 5, we see that in order to do God's good kingdom work, it would have to include fighting for the dignity and justice for all people. It's in chapter 5. Chapter 6, probably my favorite chapter in Nehemiah, other than 11 and 12, of course, um, is we see that the wall gets finished. You remember that? It started out showing us the opposition, things are going to get hard, and it concludes with just, and the wall gets done. Restoration had started. In chapter 7, we see a list of people coming back to Jerusalem. Chapter 8, we learn it wasn't just about the walls. The people of, the people of Jerusalem needed restored as well. And then in chapter 9, the people respond to the glory of Jerusalem or rather, the glory of, to the God of Jerusalem in repentance and obedience. That was Jay's sermon. Remember the portrait of the redeemed? It's showing this is what the picture, this is the picture of the people of God on earth. And then chapter 10, the people covenant to keep their covenant to live out the commands of how the people of Jerusalem are supposed to live for the glory of God. So you need to understand, we are not just approaching this out of context here. Restoration was happening. 
The longing for Jerusalem was there, and it started to work its way through the people of God. And what it led to was repentance, holiness, and joy. So, if we can see the glory of Jesus in the fact that Jerusalem's joy was heard far away, it should result in us. We should see repentance in us, holiness in us, and ultimately, joy. So, let's ask our first question. The question is this. Why does the joy of Jerusalem matter? Before we can even see it in chapter 11 and 12 of Nehemiah, it is important that you understand the longing for Jerusalem was not for some political power or just having a cool city to name after themselves. This was not the fabric of the story of Scripture. There is something deeper and bigger going on. You need to understand, God made you, He made every human being to long for Jerusalem. And to understand that, you have to see Jerusalem in light of the whole Bible. And that is where we are going to conclude our introduction. I realize this is long, but I want you to see this. So, first of all, I want to start with the future in mind. You need to understand that your Bible ends and your life will end and all of history will end with a new and heavenly Jerusalem coming out of the sky. Did you know this? The Bible is heading toward a moment when a city is going to come out of the sky. Now, I do not pretend to understand how that happens, but I know that Jesus' final redemption work is going to include a perfect Jerusalem here on earth. And that city really will be perfect. You need to understand that in this new Jerusalem, there will be no sin. There will be no suffering. There will only be perfect peace, perfect justice forever. And God will be there. You realize this. Your story is going to end when you are going to live in a city not like Huntington. You're going to live in a city that is perfect and God will dwell for the rest of forever. Every longing that you have ever had for perfection, every ache for the suffering that you maybe you've experienced or the suffering you have seen, all of that is an echo of the longing of what Christ is doing. You need to understand, Jesus really is the true and better Nehemiah who will rebuild this earth, and sin really will never touch us again. And it's with that end in mind that God creates Adam and Eve. Please understand, this New Jerusalem thing was God's plan A. It wasn't like he was like, all right, Adam and Eve, go for it, and then hopefully they don't fail. And then if they fail, i got to come up with something else. They didn't go back to like the Trinitarian boardroom and think, How do we, oh man, what, these people, we created them and they failed, what are we going to do now? This was always the plan. God was working something to where a new Jerusalem, the the fulfillment of every longing of every human being would come in perfection. And it's with that end in mind, he made a beautiful world and put Adam and Eve in it. And I wish I had time to show you all of the details of this. And if you want to know more, please come find me. I'd love to give you books and articles that I found in my research of this. But suffice to say that the Garden of Eden actually resembled and had echoes of the future tabernacle and temple of God. Which means Adam and Eve were not just gardeners. If you follow and see all of the imagery happening in Genesis 1 through 3, Adam and Eve were not just gardeners. They were actually priests, image bearer, glory spreaders. That was the idea. They were to rule with God. This was a kingdom temple garden. That God had started his project to spread his glory and his joy all over the earth. 
And then God makes it clear in Genesis 1, in the narrative of Genesis 1 and 2, that he would walk with us. The essence of joy. This wasn't begrudging obedience that he was calling us to. This was walk with me and rule with me, and we will spread my glory all over this earth. And then to help them with that, he commands Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and work the ground. This was the call for humans to rule and expand Eden to the ends of the earth. Sound familiar? This should sound to you like our great commission. This is kingdom-building language. This is echoes of the new and heavenly Jerusalem where God would dwell with his people forever. The point of history is, the, is that God will dwell with us forever. And the Garden of Eden and the creation of people was the first step to this project to expand the joy of God everywhere. But as you know, that is not how the story went. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, instead of ruling with God over creation, creation rules over them. They should have stomped on the snake's head when Satan came into the garden. Instead, Satan tempted them and they chose sin and not joy. And God removes them from Eden. And you know that right after that is Cain and Abel. And then we have a global flood that wipes out people. And then once he, God restarts, Noah and his family, turns out they are sinful too. And eventually the epitome of evil culminates in Genesis 11. And what you'll see here in Genesis 11 is that there was this broken desire to continue to build God's kingdom. And instead of God's people who he made building for his glory, instead they built a tower of Babel. Y'all remember this story, Genesis 11? You notice in the details of this, this was, this was a good desire to build for, just to build and create and expand, but instead of spreading over the whole earth, they tried to go up to God and make a name for themselves. They built a tower for their own glory. The priest, joy-spreading image bearers, decided to instead choose sin and build a monument to it. They used their gifts and their desires to glorify themselves and not God. By the way, these issues from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, these are the issues of our day. It's not just the guilt and shame that we see stinging humanity in the garden. It is also our innate desire to build, and to build movements and platforms and kingdoms for ourselves. It's not just a guilt and shame problem. We have a Babel problem. Naturally, on our own, we build Babel. We do not build Jerusalem. But if you notice in your Bibles, right after Genesis chapter 11, we have the devastating story of the Tower of Babel, but God is at work in the shadows. God was not done with his glory joy project. It is against the background of this godless city that God calls Abraham to make him a blessing to the nations. Seriously, read through Genesis. It's Genesis 11 in your title, Tower of Babel. Genesis 12, the call of Abram. God was on the move. God would not let human corruption disrupt his plan to build a city of perfection where he would dwell with us forever. And we learn that this people, the people of Abraham, would bless every nation, and they become their own nation through Moses. And then we realize this nation is actually a kingdom. We see King David and King Solomon, and right in the middle of this kingdom is a temple, and that temple is in Jerusalem. The point of it all, they wanted God's presence to be made known and for the joy of God in Jerusalem to thunder, starting in Israel, starting in that temple, all over the earth. God was starting his plan. 
All of these themes work together in Scripture. God will not let corruption and sin win. He will not let Babel win. He is building his city in and through his people as they obey him. And yet we continuously fail. Their sin and failure to even live out what the earthly Jerusalem was supposed to be led them into exile, which is where we find ourselves in Nehemiah. So these chapters are a huge deal. It is a reconfirmation that God is still at work. He will build his kingdom in and through people who covenant with him in obedience. And in spite of our evil Babylonian tendencies, he is still good and he is still going to accomplish his plan. So Babylon gets captured by Persia and Persian exile is where the people of God find themselves in the book of Nehemiah. So this chapter is going to start out just praising the Lord for faithful people of God. Because it is always a big deal. In a world that is dominated by Babylon, we are still called to fight for the joy of Jerusalem. And I want to show you two verses in Psalm 48. Because once you see this, once you see biblical theology weaving its way through Scripture, you can't unsee it. Look at Psalm 48. It's incredible. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Where? In the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. Look, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion, in the far north, the city of the great king. This is everywhere. God is wanting to accomplish his purpose of establishing his kingdom, and the joy of his Jerusalem will go to the ends of the earth. So, that's the intro, and it's long. So let's go to Nehemiah 11. We got verses 1 and 2 to start us out. Let's see how these chapters fit into that global glory plan that God has for us. Look at verse 1. Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of, one out of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. While nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. It's an interesting thing going on here. First thing I want you to see is this is a beautiful picture of the courage it takes to live a life for the glory of God. They are blessing the people who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem, and looks like some of them were not willing. Do you see this? Now, maybe growing up, did you all ever do this? They called it uh, like nose ghosts. So it's like all you all have this thing that you really don't want to do, but then, like, for whatever reason, we've decided culturally that if you were the last person to touch your nose, that means you have to go do that thing. That, that's kind of what's happening. This is a Persian exile version of nose ghosts. They don't want to go into Jerusalem. So they're like, okay, look, we'll cast lots. And then if it, you know, nose ghosts, you're moving out of your village, you're going into Jerusalem. But the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So why would they do that? You don't want to skip over these details in your Bible reading. You've got to ask it questions over and over again to get to the glory here. Why would they bless and why would they celebrate people who willingly lived in Jerusalem? So with all of that theology behind us, here's a few answers to that question. First of all, it was dangerous to go live in Jerusalem. You need to understand this. I mean, we already saw that, right? It was dangerous to rebuild Jerusalem, which means it's going to be dangerous to continue to live there. It's not like... The villains introduced in the earlier part of Nehemiah were like, oh man, they got it done. We're cool now, right? Like there is an opposition to the kingdom of God always. And now that they had walls, 
The armies would go there first because they know that's where the resources would be kept. This is a risk with their lives to go live in Jerusalem. Secondly, you would have less land if you moved to Jerusalem. Your financial security was at risk. So the conclusion of this is, it was a bad life move to go live in Jerusalem. Unless your life was captivated by the plan of God for the glory of God, rather than your plan for the glory of you. And I love that God in his word takes the time to bless and acknowledge those who continue in God's plan for the world through his holy city. And then jumping from there, we get to see lists that highlight how this repopulation, remember, be fruitful and multiply, this repopulation of Jerusalem would look. We're not going to go through every name, as I mentioned earlier, because I don't want you to miss the point of the incredible thing that is happening here. So what we're going to do is highlight the different angles so that you can understand the epicness of the celebration at the end of chapter 12. So verses 3 and 5, we see the chiefs of the providences who decided to live in Jerusalem, but then it makes a point to let you know that some still lived in other towns. And then it says that certain sons lived in Jerusalem, meaning that certain sons did not. And I believe the Bible is making it clear that there is a a large contrast between the people who choose God's kingdom over their own kingdom. You need to understand, there is no middle ground. Like, the people who decided to not take the risk to live for God's glory did not get to be like, hey, we're cheering for Jerusalem. Like, we'll wear a Jerusalem t-shirt. Like, we'll put a Jerusalem, like, like, gosh, honoring the people who left for Jerusalem. Like, there was none of that because it was obvious because you either lived in Jerusalem or you did not. There's not a middle ground here. Certain people went, and certain of them did not. And then look what verse 6 calls them. All of the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468, here's the key, valiant men. You want to live a life of true courage and valiance? It's only found in living for God's kingdom. Keeps going. Nehemiah 11, 7 and 9. We see that these men who were in Jerusalem were also called again, men of valor, begging us to keep putting this in front of us. Do we want our life to actually count? The only way is to live for God's kingdom. It, life and joy and purpose and meaning is not found in pitching your tent out in the village. It's found in trusting God's plan to move your heart toward obedience to hard things. Nehemiah 11, 10 through 14, we find out which priests are going to go. These are people who were not only content with their religious title, but instead their confession matched their life. You need to understand that. If you're a Christian here, you are a priest of God. But you must ask, does your confession of who you are match the obedience of your life? Verse 14 says in their brothers, mighty men of valor, 128. So once again, see how God views those who choose his kingdom over their own. And I want to make a note here. It's not because these valiant, mighty men of valor were somehow inherently better. They were just people whose hearts and minds were captivated by what God is doing in the world. You need to understand this is not reserved for super Christians. The call to live for God is for people who will simply trust him and put their obedience on the line. That's what these people were doing. And then in verses 15 through 18, we see which Levites joined the mission, and in those details, we see that they were to work in the house of God, 
give thanks and be the leaders of the praise. Understand what is crucial to advancing God's kingdom on earth is working ministry, giving thanks, and praising him. It's a crucial part of God's plan to get joy to the whole earth. Verses 23 and 24 says this, For there was a command from the king concerning them, and a fixed provision for the singers, as every day required. And Pethahiah, the son of Meshezabel, of the sons of Zerah, the son of Judah, was at the king's side in all matters concerning the people. So in this moment, we've gotten back, God's plan is in front of them, and they establish worship, and they establish leadership. And then to the end of the chapter, we get a list of the regions and the people who live in the villages. You need to understand that there were people here who chose their own comfort over following God's plan, and you need to understand, even as a believer, God has every single one of your deeds known. Jesus makes it clear that literally every word we speak will be held, will be held accountable for. Now, I'm not saying these people who chose to live in the village, that was just their path of destruction forever. I don't think we can make a claim there. But you need to understand that just because you're a believer, you are held accountable for the way you live your life. In no way does your ministry work qualify you for heaven. But qualified people in heaven live out this way. They hear God's plan. They hear of the hard stuff. And they change their life in response to it. Followers of Jesus do not hear hard things, hear calls against their sin, and do nothing. In, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 26, we see a summary of the priests and the Levites who came to repopulate Jerusalem and establish the worship of God in his kingdom. And you see throughout the details of these lists that they were setting up for a huge worship service culminating in celebrating the joy of Jerusalem and the glory of God. One note before we start reading in verse 27. I want you to see that God uses any person who will be used by faith. There was no act of ministry too small that cannot be infused in kingdom potential and influence. Our God is that big. Do you realize this? A huge percentage of us will never have a platform. And we shouldn't want that. We want the joy of Jesus to spread, and God uses little acts of obedience in every single one of us to advance his kingdom. And I love that God takes a moment to celebrate and to bless these people. Verse 27. Let's start reading. And this is where I will ask once again for mercy. I did spend a considerable amount of time in between services practicing some of these names. Um, which now that I've said that, we're going to screw it up bad. So let's, uh, let's look at verse 27. Okay. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and the singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites also from the Beth Gilgal, and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dumb gate, and after them Hashiah and half of the leaders of Judah and Azariah, Extra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets. 
Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son, um, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zakur, son of Asaph. Quick note here, this is most likely scholars would agree that this Asaph is actually the Asaph that wrote some of our Psalms, which is kind of incredible. Worship is embedded here in a lineage as well. Son of Asaph and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milali, Gilali, Mai, Nathanael, Judah, and Hanai with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall, above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate and the tower of Hanel, and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests of Eliakim, Messiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elonai, Zechariah, and Hannah with trumpets, and Messiah... Shemaiah, Lezer, Uzi, Jehanan, Malkajah, Elam, and Ezer, and the singers sang with Jezariah as their leader. So they're setting up this worship service with all of the plan of God in their minds, and then we see our landing verse. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. Um, and they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. So the people rejoiced. The kingdom of God was on the move because of God's grace, his promise, his plan, and the people's obedience. In a few notes in our landing verse of verse 43, notice that it's God made them rejoice with a great joy, and then that joy was heard far away. Please understand, Christian joy, the type of joy that sustains us in suffering, helps us choose God over sin, and the type that compels us to mission, that is not just a happy, optimistic attitude that we can kind of stir up in emotional services. It is only a joy given by God. And the fact that this happens should make you joyful as well. Which brings us to our next question so we can see this and what it means for us. How do these chapters show off the glory of Jesus? How do we get there? All scripture is profitable, breathed out by God for, for us. How does Nehemiah 11 and 12, the celebration, the repopulation of Jerusalem, and a gigantic worship service, how does that get us to Christ? In order to see glimmers of him and his work, I want to bring your attention to chapter 2, or uh, excuse me, verse 2 of chapter 11, and then once again to our landing verse of 1243. Remember in Nehemiah 11 too, remember this. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Nehemiah 1243. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. You need to understand that even this joy would eventually fade away into sin again. The people of God would fall short and they would continue 
to do this over and over again, just like they did in Eden. We can't bring his kingdom on earth. We can't shake the babble in us. We will always pick ourselves. We will always worship idols. And then God punishes people again. Persia was conquered by Greece. Greece was conquered by Rome. And Rome was, the, was ruling God's people when another leader restorer would hear about the brokenness of his people and move in action to do something about it. You need to understand, Jesus didn't just willingly live in Jerusalem. Jesus willingly died in Jerusalem for all of us. He went into the danger. He went into the cross because of God's global glory plan. And because of his resurrection, his joy thundered from Jerusalem as he overwhelmed the grave sin and brokenness. He didn't just unleash the joy of Jerusalem. The joy of his people dwelling with God forever is actually what sustained and motivated his purpose to the cross. Look at Hebrews 12. It shows us a glimmer of the heart of Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, pay attention to this, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the true and better valiant man. He is the true and better man of valor. He's the true and better leader who went into the brokenness of our world and our sin and came out alive and restored. And his work's not completed yet, is it? The joy of Jerusalem still hasn't been heard by every nation. Maybe even by every person in your classes. Or maybe even by, any, by every person in your workplaces. The joy of Jerusalem is still not heard to every corner of the globe. We are still, just like the people of old, we are waiting and longing and praying and hoping, trusting that God will continue and build upon His promise. I want you to see this, another angle from the Old Testament. It's all over your Bibles. Isaiah 62. You don't have to turn there, it'll be on the screen because we're going back. But this is another prophecy in our Bible from another prophet, a man of God, who was warning Warning God's people about the coming Babylonian exile. Warning them, but this is what he says. This is what gave them hope, even in the midst of Babel. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. And it's until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch, the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, hear this. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. And give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored, but those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, 
Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. This is what sustained them while they waited. The fact that there was a city coming, what would be called not forsaken. Even when you feel forsaken, you are not because Jesus, for the joy set before him, was forsaken in your place. So we wait. And we build Jerusalem. We reject Babel in our day. So what on earth does this mean for the church? We are the temple of God. You realize this, right? He calls us a holy nation. He calls us priests. He calls us his temple. We are now the way that God is bringing his joy to the nations. So how do we live out these truths in light of the gospel of the city of God? I think two things. First, defeat your sin. Number two, desire your Savior. So as we consider defeating your sin, this is a call for all of us to be the ones who would willingly go to Jerusalem. So what does that look like for us now? Ask yourself, what sins are holding you back from dying to yourself and going all in with the kingdom of God? I'm begging you, don't let this be another routine Sunday. Stop and consider, would I have gone to the village or would I have gone to Jerusalem? What, what fear do you have? Is it, is it fear of financial risk? Is it fear for your safety? Is it your love of comfort? Is, your, is it your obsession with convenience? What hard thing are you avoiding in the name of your own personal babble? God has a call on all of us to get the gospel to every person that we know and every nation on earth. The commands for the church are clear. The vision is laid out. We need to defeat by repentance whatever sin is holding us back from this. But you need to understand you cannot do this by sheer willpower. You cannot change what your flesh wants, but you can counter it with a stronger desire. And that desire is for your Savior and his city. I'm going to show you three passages in the New Testament just to give you a glimpse. Once again, I wish we had, I thought, I wish we could do like part one at nine o'clock and part two at 11. But I want to give you some glimmers of how this longing for Jerusalem shapes the church in the light of desiring Jesus. Look at Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Please understand, the point of the new Jerusalem is not the streets of gold or even the absence of suffering. The point of the new Jerusalem is that Jesus will be on his throne and every enemy will be defeated. This is how you set your heart on the things that are above. You long more than you are homesick. And especially for you students, I understand. This year has been weird and maybe you felt that draw back toward home. All of us as the people of God should feel that draw toward our final home. This is how you get your heart ready to live out the kingdom. And look at this. I love, if you haven't meditated through Hebrews 11, you should. This is an incredible picture of how the people under the old covenant lived by faith and kept their hearts focused on the kingdom. Look at the language in this. Talking about Abraham. For he was looking forward to the city, city, that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive 
even when she was past the age, and she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Here's the key for us. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, not home yet. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, and if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And until he returns, we keep willingly giving our lives for the joy of Jerusalem until the whole world hears about our joy in Christ. So what do we do in light of this? Desire Jesus by fighting your sin. Keep the faith in suffering. Trust Christ in your weakness. And just like the people of God in Nehemiah 11 and 12, keep repenting, keep celebrating, and keep worshiping because one day, here's how it all ends. And band, if you want to make your way back up to lead us this morning, this is how all of history ends. Your longings, your desires, our mission, ministry will be over because Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be as their God. He will wipe away every tear. And, the, and death shall be no more, neither shall, shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, the true and better Nehemiah says, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. One day, the goal of all creation and God's global glory plan will be complete, and the joy of Jerusalem will actually be heard all over the earth, and the sorrows of our cities will never be heard again. Let's pray. God, I just ask right now that by your grace and your spirit, you would give us a joy that would sustain us to be the ones who would go to Jerusalem that we would willingly give our lives for the sake of your mission and the kingdom, and that we would be the type of church that is marked by risking all things so that people might hear of the joy found in you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.